Thank you for visiting the openword.org, where you can find a verse-by-verse exposition of almost the entire Holy Bible and other theological resources. Welcome to the next part of the series from Alan Schaefer. Well, we're in Romans chapter 3. Wow. Yeah. <laughs> Smoking along. Yeah. Lesson number 17. And we're just up to Romans 3, 9. What Paul has been doing, of course, is laying out his indictment of mankind. And I was thinking on the way to church today that one of the things that I think we're missing in modern evangelical Christianity is before you can get somebody saved, you got to get them lost. Um, we're afraid to get people lost anymore. So you hear most pe- preachers who want you to have your best life now, and you're really not lost. You've made a mistake, all right, you know, but it's not that bad. And the scripture makes it very clear that before you get saved, you got to know you're lost. Um, and Christ had to do that with the rich young ruler, right? What was the rich young ruler's major problem? He wasn't lost. In his mind, he wasn't lost. I kept them all. And Christ had to say, wait a minute, you haven't kept them all. He said, let me show you how lost you are. Go sell everything and follow me. And he didn't. That breaks went on real quick, all right? He wasn't lost. And I remember reading somewhere about somebody telling Spurgeon that, you know, you preach about sin all the time, you know, about being lost. He said, I don't feel lost. And Spurgeon said, well, let's go down to the mortuary and we'll put a 500-pound weight on the body of a dead man. And let me ask you, does he feel lost? Does he feel the weight? Well, no, he's dead. Well, you're dead in sin. You're not going to feel the weight. Unless the Holy Spirit convicts you, you're not going to feel the way to sin. But you've got to get people lost first. And what Paul is doing here in Romans, in the first section here, is he's trying to get everybody lost. Whether you're a pagan from Bongo Bongo who's never heard about God, or whether you're a moral person, an educated person, or whether you're a Jewish person, you're all equally lost. Whether you have a lot of light or no light, you're lost. Whether you have the special revelation of God or just the general revelation of God, you're lost. And if you don't get to the point where you know you're lost, you can't be saved. Saved from what? Delivered from what? That was the Pharisees' problem, the religious leaders. They were not lost. So when Christ came along and preached repentance, like repent from what? I've kept all these things from my youth up. What did John preach? Repentance. From what? Sin. And by the way, repentance is more than some people say, well, that's just changing your mind about Jesus. No, it's more than that. Repentance means I'm going west and I turn around and go east. When you're flying a plane, when you learn to, one of the lessons you learn when you're taking flight lessons is early on you're not supposed to fly in the clouds. The reason is you can't see anything. Unless you're instrument rated, you have no business being in clouds. And I say if you accidentally find yourself in clouds, how do you get yourself out of them? 
180 degree turn and go the other way. So if you're flying in the clouds and you, you fly in the IMC, Interstormant Meteorological Conditions, standard rate turn for one minute, give you 180 degrees, and you go back the other way. That's how you get out of it, 180 degree turn. Spiritually, sort of, that's a picture there. Repentance says, I'm going in this direction. Whoop. I do a 180-degree turn and go the other way. I don't do a 160-degree turn. I don't do a 150-degree turn. I do a 180. I get out of Dodge. All right? You turn around. Metanoia, to change your mind. It's not just to change your mind about something. Change your direction. That's the whole point. Some people say, well, you just change your mind about who Jesus is. No, you got to turn around and go the other way. Keep doing your own thing. Like, you know, they asked John, well, what, what do you mean by repenting? And what did John say? Well, if you have, if somebody asks for your coat, give them your cloak also. They want to go a mile, go two. What is it? It's, it's, your, it's your actions. It's what you do. You have to change. And, 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 that's really what faith is. Faith is not, yeah, I believe God, but I'm not going to do anything about it. Noah could have said, yeah, I believe God's going to make it rain in 120 years, but I'm going to sit back and i got 120 years to coast. You wouldn't have had an ark. We wouldn't be here. you got to do something. Abel and Cain could have said, well, yeah, I know God wants this, but Cain said, yeah, I'll, I'll, give, him what he, I'll, I'll give him what I give him. Abel said, no, I'm going to do what God tells me to do. Do it his way. And what Paul is doing here is he's getting people lost. And he's going to, this is his final argument to the jury, so to speak. Think of it as a courtroom scene. Paul is now addressing the jury in the court, saying, okay, I've got all this evidence. Let's wrap this argument up. In 3.9, what then, are Jews any better off? The word better there means to have an advantage, to be one up on, to have something on your side, to surpass. Are the Jews better off than who? Than the other guys. The Jews have the law, right? Are they better off? Not at all. No way, not at all. For we have already charged that both Jews and Greeks are under sin. To the Jew, there's two groups of people in the world, us and everybody else. He said Jews and Greeks, Hellenos, the others. Both of them are under sin. What does it mean to be under sin? You're under this dominion of sin. You're, you're a slave to sin. Both of you are. It doesn't matter what law you have, or it doesn't matter how much special revelation you have. Both of you are equally, as far as God is concerned, both of you are equally under sin. You're under condemnation. And then what Paul does is he quotes the Old Testament. Many quotes out of the Old Testament. As it is written. 
And whenever you see as it is written, it is written where? In the scriptures. This is not something new. And that's one of the things that Paul is trying to do here in Romans. He's saying, you know, the, the, the argument that some Jews had is, well, Paul, you're coming up with this on your own. This is all new stuff. Paul says, no, it's not. It's written in the Old Testament. You guys just don't understand it. It's there. What did Christ tell the guys on the road to Emmaus? Let me tell you something new. What did he do? Starting with Moses and the prophets, he showed them how Christ should suffer and enter his glory. Where did he go? He went to the Old Testament. He didn't say, this is new stuff I'm giving you. It's been written. You guys just didn't get it, you lunkheads. He didn't say lunkheads, but that's what it would be. If I was translating the Bible, I'd put lunkheads in there. What's wrong with you guys? It was there. You missed it. As it is written. And one of the things that the noble Bereans did in Acts is what did they do when Paul gave them the information? Where did they go? They went to the scriptures. What scriptures did they have at that time? They had the Old Testament. The New hadn't been written yet. It's in the scriptures. And Paul is saying, <clears throat> everybody is under sin. And let me show you that by looking at the scriptures. None is righteous, no, not one. Sammy, would you, you got your message there, right? Could you read Psalm 14, 1 through 3? Right. Psalms 14, yeah. 1 through 3. Oh, yay. Wow. Bilious and bloated, they, they gas, God is gone. Their words are poison gas, fouling the air. They poison rivers and skies. Thistles are their cash crop. One, two, three. Uh, God sticks his head out of heaven. He looks around. He's looking for someone not stupid. One man, even God expectant, just one God-ready woman. He comes up empty. A string of zeros, useless. Unshepherded, I'm sorry, useless, unshepherded sheep taking turns pretending to be shepherd. The ninety and nine follow their fellow. So you got the lost sheep, the ninety and nine are following the lost one, and they're all lost. That's sort of an interesting way for him to put that. Romans 3, 10, 11, and 12 are quoting from that passage. As is written, there is none righteous, not even one. Ezekiel says God looks down and he's saying, can I find a righteous person? And there's not even one of them. See, the Jews said, yeah, we are. God looks down and he's happy with us. The Pharisees thought that when Messiah returned, the first thing we'd do is pat them on the back for being so godly. Paul is saying it's in your own scriptures. You go back and read your own scriptures. There's none righteous. No one. What does it mean to be righteous? Righteous. 
God. Right standing before God. No one's righteous. And by the way here, an interesting word in verse 9, charged. The word charged there is an interesting word. It was used in the law system of that day. It means to bring a charge against, to accuse somebody in a court of law. Paul says, we have charged, we have, this is the indictment against mankind. Whether you're a Jew or a Gentile, you're under sin. And how do you know that? Well, because God wrote in Psalms, there's none righteous, no, not one. He says, uh, no one understands. What does it mean that you think it means to understand? Does it mean that they're stupid? No, they don't. It's not that they're stupid. This is not an indictment against intelligence level. It's an indictment against their spiritual understanding. They don't get it. There's no spiritual understanding. And the, the word actually means to join two things in your mind to make a connection. All right? It's sort of like you're a sinner, and then you're, you're, you, you look at yourself and say, well, that, that doesn't connect. I'm not making the connection. That's the Pharisees' problem, right? They thought they were righteous, so the idea of them being a sinner, it, it didn't connect. They couldn't put those two ideas together to form a conclusion. Oh, we're, the, we're in. We don't know about you, Jesus. We're in. We're okay. Spiritual understanding. And this is the thing to understand that I think the longer you're a Christian, the less you appreciate this. If God didn't open your heart, you'd be as dense as a rock as well. I mean, I look at some of the, you know, talking heads on TV and the ex experts of the day, and I say, what a bunch of moronic idiots. And I say, now, wait a minute, Alan. If it wasn't for the Lord, you'd be a moronic idiot. You'd be with them. Okay? Yeah, it's easy for us to look at other people and say, how can they be so dumb? And we fail to understand if it wasn't for God's grace in our hearts, we would be the same way. Well, and that's why the Pharisees really didn't understand the fruit no. of the law. Exactly. No. Yes. They had it, but they didn't get the purpose of it. And he's going to tell you what the purpose is here in a few verses. But we I think sometimes we as Christians, we we don't appreciate just how much God is shown us and somehow we think it's our intellectual abilities or insights or whatever and unless the father granted us the understanding none of us would understand I was thinking about this the other day why am I a Christian I'm not a Christian because I'm bright and smart and I analyzed all of the religions of the world and thought that Christianity was probably the best of the deal because God opened my heart. One day the light bulb went on and I understood. And where did that light bulb, who turned the, 
Who turned the switch on? It wasn't me. God turned it on. Paul is saying these people, he said, humanity, they can't make the connection because the lights are off. God, they, they don't have any spiritual understanding. And it says here, there's none who seeks for God. Now, you know, I told you I'm practicing my Greek on y'all. All right? All right? That's ek zetao. Zetao means to seek. Whenever you put a preposition on the front of a verb in Greek, you intensify it. Makes it, makes it intense. That's right? We sort of do the same thing in English, like, yeah. you know, abound or overabound. Yeah. He does, but he overdoes. It intensifies it. So what Paul is saying here is not only are people not trying to seek God, the, the idea there, it's a diligent, earnest seeking out of something. It's a search. It's a, it's a concerted search. No one is doing a concerted search for God. People say, well, I know somebody's searching for God. No, they're not. What are they searching for? Does anybody search for God? For God? That's a command to his people. But, but the average person, go to any liberal college campus and say, are you seeking God? Oh, yeah, I'm seeking God. Are they really seeking God? What are they seeking? What God gives. They're not seeking God for who God is, right? That's what Paul's saying. No one is seeking God for who he is. You're seeking God for what he gives you. Peace, joy, happiness, fulfillment. Give the list. But no one is seeking God for God. No one does that. The lost sheep. Are they, is that lost sheep out there bowing in the wilderness seeking the shepherd? No, it's just wandering around in circles, isn't it? Who's got to do the seeking? What did Christ say? I've come to seek and to save that which is lost. No one, here's the idea that Paul's trying to get here. No one seeks God for who God is. They seek God for what God gives. What do I get out of this deal? What's in it for me? And if God doesn't deliver what's in it for them, they don't want to have anything to do with that. That's the point that Paul is making here. So when someone says they're seeking for God, ask them, what do you really want to find? Do you want to find the God who is? Or do you want something else? And most want something else. You listen to the TV preachers. Most of the TV preachers come to God. He will make you happy. Your best life now. No. Maybe it'll cost you everything. What did Christ say? If you're not willing to give up father, mother, sister, brother, I don't want you. Go away. I don't want that. No one seeks God for who God is. And that's a challenge for us, just as an aside, do you want to seek God for who He is or for what He gives you? 
And then it says they've all turned aside. What does it mean to turn aside? To get off the path. Everybody's turned aside. They're wandering around somewhere. There's a lot of places to wander around to, isn't there? It means to deviate from the right path, to turn aside. It's like here's the road, and I get off the road, and oh, man, I don't know where I'm at. I had that happen to me when I'm taking a hike up through one of the parks I was in. They had blazed trails. And somewhere along the line, the tree that had the blaze on it fell over, and I was wandering around for 15 minutes trying to find where the trail went. That was a very bad feeling. Yes. Now, look, I wasn't out in the middle of nowhere. I mean, I could have gone a mile in any direction and found somebody. But still, you're out there saying, where's the, where's the path? Yeah. There's the path, and, you know, it's in the fall. You know, it leaves all over the place. I don't know where the path is. And finally, I found the blaze a long ways away. I found another one. I was able to finally get back on the path, but... The idea there is that we are off the path. We're wandering around. We're not on the right way. Paul's saying you're wandering around. You're not on the right path. And then it says you become worthless. Now this is one of my all-time favorite Greek words. Hakriastune. Hakriastune, it's one of my favorite Greek words. Yeah. It means sour milk. Worthless. Ruined. Spoiled. What do you do with spoiled milk? Right? The idea there is something that is spoiled, something that is rotting. Something that is worthless. You can't do anything with it except get rid of it. From God's perspective, you're all spoiled goods. We're spoiled, we're worthless. What do you do with rotten meat? You bury it, you get rid of it. What do you do with sour milk? You flush it down the, as fast as you can, actually, you know, because it, it's gross. Paul's saying we're all sour milk, we're all worthless. Why do people eat cottage cheese? Then? That's beyond me. The last time I had cottage cheese, I was five years old, and I've sworn off it since. It's, it's, an, it's, it's an aberration of nature to eat that stuff, you know it? Just like coleslaw. Coleslaw is gross. No, that's, that's just like, and it's funny because every time we go out, Donna said, would you like some coleslaw? And I tell Donna, I said, you've been married to me for 35 years. I've never eaten it. What makes you think I'm going to change my mind today? You know? Well, I thought I'd ask you. <laughs> but, but the point there is that Paul is saying, you're spoiled. You're good for nothing to be, except to be thrown out. You smell, you stink, you're rotten. We like to think, well, we're not that rotten. We're okay. We're sort of pretty good people. Paul says, no, you're not. You're rotten. He said, their throat is an open grave. What do you know about an open grave? And it, yeah. I mean, I've read stories, you know, where one of mine is uh, The Old Breed by, uh, by Eugene Sledge, who, went, who was a Marine on the, I think it's a something Marine Corps, I forget which one it was, Marine Division. They fought on Peleliu and all of that. He said the problem is out there, you know, when you're getting shot at, you've got 
thousands of bodies laying around in the hot tropical sun and you can't bury them. He said it ruins your smell for years. The stench. Paul is saying your throat, when you open it up, what comes out of it? The stench of the grave. The stench of the grave. And you know, that stench is kind of hard to get rid of. Yeah. Sam called, Mom, where's Dad? I ultimately got the state troopers and so forth and so on. He was found in the Bronx. He had passed away in his vehicle. Um, ultimately, in spite of the funeral home doing its best possible job to clean it, you cannot clean that smell. So all the way from New York to Ohio by myself, Yeah, yeah. My brother-in-law was telling me this. He, he was an EMT, and I guess some guy in Cleveland had a heart attack, fell over on top of the radiator in the middle of winter, and they found him a few days later. You know, and um, he said, you know, they, they put him in whatever they had to do to get him out of there. You know, and he said the ambulance reeked of that for months. You couldn't get rid of it. You couldn't get rid of the smell. That's what Paul is saying. When you open your mouth, what comes out of it? putrid rot of the grave. You see some of that in the things that people say today. It's like, in God's sight, when they talk, it's like the stench of a grave. It's not that your speech is good. It stinks. It's horrible. Yeah, it's not just profanity, but it's everything. But you're right. Paul's saying your throat... Your speech is the speech of a rotting corpse in a grave. It stinks in God's sight. By the way, that's, I think, Psalm 14, 1 through, or excuse me, Psalm 5, 9 is that verse. Their throat, larynx, their speech. It's like an open grave. With their tongues, they, have, they deceive. What does it mean to deceive? The word there is an awesome word. The leo means to lure with bait, to attract. They deceive with their speech. If you want to see deceptive speech, just turn on any, any, any news channel or anything if you're hearing from the day. That's all deceptive speech. It's all a bunch of lies. It's just how bad are they? But no one's telling the truth. Yeah. It says every word they speak is a landmine. Their lungs breathe out poison gas. Their throats are gaping graves. Their tongues slick as mudslides. How you like that? That's pretty descriptive. They deceive. We live in a world of deception. What is Satan known as? The father of what? Do you realize Satan can't tell you the truth? There are people today that can't tell you the truth. 
It's sort of like, I, and I've never watched it, but supposedly there's a comedy, Liar, Liar, with whatever his name is, where he, he, he's cursed for one day after to actually tell the absolute truth. The movie? Yeah. Oh, it was you know, he actually has to tell the truth. Can you imagine what would happen in the world if everybody's told the truth for one day? What would happen if, if everybody had to tell the truth, if every person on the planet had to tell the truth for one day? How would that work? The Bible says we are deceptive people. We deceive. Satan is the deceiver, the liar. Has God said? Did he really say that? It's deceptive. Yeah. We are deceived. It's the, it's the idea of baiting a hook to deceive and to lure somebody. And the poison of apps there, that word there is an interesting word. It refers to a little snake that was a deadly bite. It's not that it made you sick, it's it killed you. If that thing bit you in the finger, if you didn't cut your finger off right away back in those days, you'd die. The poison would spread, you'd die. Paul's saying that their throat, when they open up, out comes poison, and not just any kind of poison, it's the poison that kills. It's a deadly poison. Remember the fiery serpents that went into the camp of the Israelites? And they had to have the brown serpent on the pole that people could look at and be healed? These are deadly vipers. How do you like that? How do you like talking to somebody, you know, you know, the Indians had, he speaketh with forked tongue. Listen, we have a world full of people with forked tongues. Paul is saying mankind, as far, when God is looking at mankind, their speech is like an open grave. They voice poison out of their mouths like a snake. And we just accept the lies. Yes. Aside, look at the news today. When you listen to the news, everybody knows they're lying, but what do you do? You keep listening to it. What would happen if, you know, go back to 1960s when if a, if a news anchor got on there and lied to you, he'd be off the air. That's right. Now he gets promoted. Yes. We're used to lies. We're so used to lies, we just accept it as a normal part of life. Yeah, they're lying to me. And we just let them keep lying. We've gotten used to it. As Christians, though, the ball, what, did, what did God say? Let your yea be yea, your no be no. Do not lie. That's the one thing about God. God cannot lie, can he? He cannot deceive you. He cannot lie to you. We do. He told Gary, I don't lie to him if I absolutely have to. That's right. It says their mouth is full of cursing and bitterness. It goes back to what Sammy said. Their mouth is full of this. It's just... It comes out, the bitterness, the anger, the vitriol just comes out. Look at the reactions of some of the people on, you know, your news programs and something that doesn't go the way they like. It's just vitriol. We, we don't even dialogue with people anymore. We just blow out a lot of hatred and anger and, and we're used to that. The Bible says the average person, their mouth is full of cursing. The, the cursor is an imprecation, the bitter 
gall is extreme wickedness and hatred just spews out of your mouth. By the way, that's a, prover- that's a quote from Psalm 10, 7. That one. It says, their feet are swift to shed blood. They're quick to go and do violence. Shed there is to pour out. Pretty vivid thing, pouring out blood. They're quick to run and to create destruction. See some of the riots, right? I mean, we've seen riots on TV and in our, some of our cities riots are people just get caught up and they go out and they burn stuff up and they throw, hey, let's go, let's go burn down a car. Let's go. Their feet are swift to do that. No one's saying, why are we doing this? Why are we doing this? It's it's, it's everybody. I'm not, I'm not going to pick on any one side. It's everything. Buildings, Buildings, cars, anything. Blocks, destruction of what... People are swift to do this. They're being used. They're being used. I'm just saying, we, we see this in our society and in our world. You don't like something. You go burn things down. You go destroy things. You... You're swift to, to, to destruction and misery, and just you just want to do that. Psalm 10, 7, you said, yeah. They carry a mouthful of hexes. Their tongues spit venom like adders. They hide behind ordinary people. They pounce on their victims. Yeah. Well, that sounds like what we see around us, don't we? And then the next one here, their feet are swift to shed blood. Look at Isaiah 59, 7 through 8. That's a quote Isaiah 59, 7 through 8. But people are swift to be caught up into riots. And you go along with the crowd, right? The crowd is doing it. You run with the crowd. You get caught up into the moment. And by the way, the Bible never allows us to do that. Christians should not be doing that kind of stuff. And we should not allow that kind of stuff, but we do. And then Romans 3, 16, again, quoting from Isaiah 59. It says here, in their paths are ruin and misery, and the way of peace they have not known. And I was thinking about this. You know, you look at the average person in sin out there. What's their life like? Living in sin. What's their life overall like? Miserable. Destruction and misery are in their way. Some of the most miserable people on the planet are the ones that are sinning and doing their own thing. They destroy themselves. How do you get a drug addict to destroy themselves? You give them all the drugs they want. That'll kill them. That's not helping them. You're killing them. Sin has a way of destroying itself. It's sort of like cancer. What does cancer do? You know, the cancer's, if, you know if, you're, if the cancer was intelligent, say, do I really want to destroy this body and kill myself? 
right? What does cancer do? It destroys the host. It kills itself. Sinners are miserable, destructive people. Everything they touch turns to dust. It rots. No matter how hard they try, it just doesn't work. The idea there, I have freedom, I can do what I want. And it ruins your life. We're going to see this, I think, coming up in the next few years in this whole LGBTQ stuff. Where it's not only getting to the point now where it's bad to say anything against it, it's going to be illegal. Right now in Canada, it's illegal to say anything against them. So not only not are you a sinner, but now you're making it illegal for somebody to tell you you're a sinner. And they have studies on this, and I don't know where they are, but psychological studies that people who go down this path are the most miserable, and they high suicide rate, high just problems off the charts. This is not, you're not making this stuff up. It's, it's clinical data that they got on this thing. But we're miserable, and it says... These people, human beings, have left themselves destruction and misery are in their paths. Not only for themselves, but they destroy everything they touch. They ruin it. They bring it to nothing. It's, it means to shatter, to, to break something. It's shattered. What happens when you break a dish and it shatters it? You can put it back together? Usually you can't, right? Because there's always some piece you're missing. It's like shattering something. And it says here, um, 317, the way of peace they have not known. It's like you got two paths. Destruction and misery, peace. Uh, I'll take destruction and misery for 200, please. Sort of reminds you a little bit of Matthew 7, doesn't it? Broad is the gate that leads to destruction. Narrow is the way that leads to eternal life. Which path do you want to be on? We have a world today that's careening down the path of destruction. Oh, they think they're free and they can do what they want. And anybody who's on that path says, hey, you know, you guys are going to destruction. Well, who right do you have to tell me? I, All right, fine. There's only one diagnosis that's still gender dysphoria. If they are still allowing that one to be kept there and wondering how long they will... Next, next edition, they'll get rid of it. Yeah, probably possibly. So I'm just glad that it's still there. So yeah. Far. They at least acknowledge yeah. that there are some people who uh, have that problem. Yeah. Yeah, DSM is the Diagnostic and Statistical Manual that's used to um, diagnose codes, like if you're getting um, therapy and things like that. And over the years, it used to be homosexuality was wrong. They got rid of that. They get rid of this. They get rid of this. You know, so all of these things that the Bible calls sins are being eliminated from the Statistical Manual, which means that it's okay to have these things. You're not, you don't need therapy. Exodus International was a 
major organization counseling people uh, with homosexual desires, and it was going very strongly in the 80s, 90s, but they got kicked to the curb. I mean, they got put out of business yeah. as an organization because, I mean, we need the homosexual advocates and lifestyle people. Uh, can't allow them to exist if we are right. Yeah. Both of us can't be right. Here. Yeah. And by the way, let's understand something. God said this was going to happen. He didn't say in the end time things are going to get better and better. They're going to get worse and worse. All right? So, you know, just get go along with it. But then it says here, there is no fear of God before their eyes. What causes all of this stuff to come about? No one's afraid of God anymore. See, in the Old Testament, you were afraid of God. Why? Because if you didn't do something right, what happened? It was a bad day, wasn't it? Now God's this big teddy bear. Oh, he would never do that. Here's the point. If you want to know what God will or will not do, who do you ask? God. Don't ask your therapist. He's not going to have the right, he or she will not have the right answer. Don't ask your neighbor. They're not going to have the right answer. Don't ask anybody. If you want to really know what God is like, you can't ask any human being. You've got to ask God himself. He will tell you. Now, if you, tell some, if you ask somebody who God is and they're telling you what God says, that's different. We understand that. But by and large, if you want to know what God is like, you can't depend on your own thinking. Because you're always going to make God into something he is not. Tells you. And nobody fears God anymore. Nobody's afraid of God. Well, I'm saying as Christians we are. Why? Because God's given us that. By the way, fear there is phobos. It's not like awe. It's like actual fear. When John saw the risen Christ in the book of Revelation, how did he do? What did he do? He had to be picked up off the, off the floor. When Isaiah saw the Lord, what did he do? Damn me, I'm I'm dead. The word there is damn. I know. I, I told damn you. me. I'm done. I, this is not work. This is not a good thing. I just said that because in case somebody didn't yeah, it's, it is bad. It's, it's the strong negative I am done for. Nobody went up to God and said, hey, how you doing? Daniel fell down. John fell down. Isaiah falls down. Ezekiel was scared out of his mind. We need to fear God. As Christians, we need to fear God. I loved my dad, but I feared my dad. If I got out of line, it was not a good day. We have to renew our fear of God. Our God is a consuming fire. The same God who died for me on the cross in the person of his son is going to condemn the bulk of humanity to an eternal lake of fire. He is a consuming fire. We have to have a fear of God. And he said, therefore, in verse 19, 
Now we know that whatever thing the law says, it says to them who are under the law. Who's under the law? All of us. This is the law. I mean, Paul is basically turning to the court now and the jury and said, okay, here's the indictment, here's the evidence. Now you know that they're under the law, right? They're under that. We know. The idea there, that, that by the way is a present, is a perfect tense, which means we know and we continue to know it's a settled fact. It's not that we knew or we learned. We're in a state of knowing that everybody is under the law. No one is outside of the law. So that every mouth may be what? Stopped. That's an interesting word. In the jurisprudence of the day, that word was used to mean you lost your case. You lost your court case. When your mouth is stopped, you've lost your court case. Jurisprudence. jurisprudence. No, jurisprudence is the legal system of the day. You lost your case. When they say, when your mouth is stopped, it's like, you know, the judge, gavel comes down, guilty. My case is over. I have nothing further to say. I lost. Paul is saying, we've lost our case. Every mouth is stopped. There's nothing to say. There's no defense. See, the idea there is I'll get before God and I'll talk my way out of it. No, you won't. He's got the goods on you. When those books are open, if you're a lost person, the books are open, you're done for. There's, not, there's no excuse. There's no yeah, but. There's no extenuating circumstances. There's no Twinkie defense. You're, you're guilty. Every mouth is stopped. And all the world has become what? Guilty. There's only one possible decision the judge can make. You're guilty. You're condemned. You're under the law. I don't care whether you're Jew or Gentile, whether you knew or didn't or what. All that, that's, all, that's all noise to get you where you're at, but it doesn't change the fact of where you're at. You're lost. And it says here, for by the works of the law, no human being will be justified in his sight. For by the law is the knowledge of sin. Let's, this is the idea here. The law does not have built within it a payback mechanism. See, we think that if I do a good deed, that cancels a bad deed. No, it doesn't. What should you be doing? The good deed. That's what you should be doing. The good deed. You don't, you, don't get, you don't get, oh, he did five good deeds and one bad deed. Ah, he's plus four so far. No, that doesn't work that way. It's not a zero-sum game. If I, if I, you go back and read the Ohio Revised Code or the Federal Revised Code, if you can read that, which is, nobody can make sense of it. But nowhere in there does it have a mechanism whereby, well, if you commit a murder, but then if you do five good deeds, we'll erase the murder conviction. No, it doesn't, it doesn't work that way. 
What Paul is saying is that what you're supposed to do is perfection. Anytime you go below that, you lose, but there's no way to go back up to perfection once it's lost. Think about this. Every time you commit a sin, you're charging up your heavenly charge account. And so in the days that you actually do the right thing and pay in cash, they don't subtract anything from the charge account. You still owe that. God is saying there's no mechanism built into the law to just justify you. All the law can do is say, here's what you should have done. Did you do it? Yes, no. Yes, no. No, yeah, buts. No, but. No, none of that. Yes, no. Were you going, were you going 65 in a 55 zone? Yes or no. But I had to. Yes or no. That's all the law can do. We know it. The law comes the knowledge, epignosis, the deep knowledge. You want to know what sin is, the law will tell you what it is. And all you can do is sit there and say, with Isaiah, damn me. Damn me. It's a mirror. It's to show you just how bad you are. Here's the point. you got to get lost before you can get saved. If you don't acknowledge your sin, it stops. You cannot be a Christian without acknowledging your sin. You can't. You can't present the gospel to somebody without presenting the fact that they are a sinner. That's the starting point. If you don't start there, there is no gospel. There's got to be a recognition of sin. And if there isn't, there's no hope. God can forgive us. But we have to acknowledge our condition. And Paul hears what he's done in Romans 3, up to Romans 3.20. Everybody is guilty. You've lost your case. The gavel has fallen. You're guilty. Now all that remains is the sentence. That's, there is no more arguing before the court. Now it's sentencing time. And, and because you're all under the law, you're all guilty, if nothing happens, what is the only just sentence? Death. You've got to get lost before you can get saved. No. And see, that's, that's the thing here. You know, people, well, you know, you know, I had a rougher time than that other person. Doesn't matter. That's noise. That helps us understand. We've all gotten to our lostness in different paths, right? But we're still lost. And trying to analyze how did I get here doesn't help as much as what do I do now? How do I get out of this mess? Where do I go from here? And Paul is going to now turn. You're under sin. You're unrighteous. You're condemned. What hope do you have? 
Russia has had to get there. But aside from paths getting there, we were, as David says, in Psalm 51, born. We're born in sin. And shaped in iniquity. Enoch <coughs> fell under that. Enoch did. All of us did. That's right. So it's not so much, well, it is that too, but it's not so much what we do, it's that we are sinners from yeah. birth because our mom and dad, Adam and Eve, put us Yeah. And we all of us make different bad decisions to get to different bad spots. But the point, the point that Paul makes is, Lord, I'm, I have no excuse. I have no defense. My case is lost. I stand condemned. And God says, okay, now I got you where you need to be. Because now we can do something. You got to acknowledge your sin. Jesus said, I come to seek and to save that which was lost. Not that which was just made a couple of mistakes hither and yon and made a bad decision here and there. Yeah. You're lost. And we're all equally lost. So we'll pick up from here next week. Yeah. The point is, from God's perspective, we're all equally bad. We're all equally bad. We compare ourselves with each other. We're all equally bad. Father, thank you for this day and thank you for your word. And thank you for this sobering section of scripture that puts us all in the same spot. We stand before you condemned. We have no excuse. We like to make excuses. We like to think we're better than other people or we're not as bad as you say we are. We're all equally bad. And uh, I thank you, Father, that you brought us to that conclusion, those of us who know you, that, yeah, we do stand condemned, and the only way back is to come the way of the cross that we're going to read about in the next section here. Thank you, Father, you provided a way back. You didn't just leave us in the mess, but you made a way out. But that way out is through the blood of the cross, through your Son, through, through your way back, not our way back. And again, thank you for this time of study. Pray that we keep these words to our hearts in Christ's name. Thank you for listening. This podcast was made in part with creative consulting and production assistance by Third Mass Studio. For your production needs, send an email to thirdmassstudio at gmail.com. For other lectures in this series and more biblical media resources, visit theopenword.org.